Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Although the holidays are gone, most of our holiday gifts are still with us. And in no small number of households, some of those gifts carry the label virtual reality. Which is why this morning we've asked our David Pogue of Yahoo Tech for a virtual reality check. Believe it or not, virtual reality headsets like these were one of the hottest gifts of the holiday season. You gotta get it. It's amazing. I felt like I was actually there. But does VR really deserve all the hype? Oh, explosions. Ahead on Sunday morning, a reality check on virtual reality. Lee Daniels is a Hollywood producer and director who came up the hard way and who makes neither apologies nor excuses. Morocco will have our Sunday profile. Hey, Pam. Good morning. How are you? Lee Daniels doesn't shy away from controversy in his movies or television shows. I think that we have become so sanitized. We are to the point right now in America that we aren't able on primetime television to do what my hero, Norman Lear, was able to do. And that was to change the way people thought. Producer, director, writer Lee Daniels, ahead on Sunday morning. How's it going? I'm in a hammock, working. What's not to love? <laughs> in this day and age, could there really be such a thing as the curse of the lost city? A question for our Lee Cowan. The Honduran jungle can breed all manner of things, especially legends, including one about a lost ancient city. And as I looked around, I saw the tops of dozens and dozens of stone sculptures just peeking above the ground. And I realized, my God, there's stuff everywhere around here. But the find came with a price that is still being paid today. A lost city found later on Sunday morning. What better credential for a pop star than to have the stage name Iggy Pop? Not that he always stays on the stage, as Anthony Mason will show us. He was the first rock star to dive off a stage. And at 69, Iggy Pop still gets the urge. I thought you'd given up stage diving. Well, I gave it up here, but not here. <laughs> Later on Sunday morning, punk legend Iggy Pop. Tracy Smith marks the passing of the artist behind Bambi. Rita Braver looks at the work of two great painters side by side. Tony DeCopel introduces us to a 40-year-old horse who's still kicking and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Good work. Good work. All right. Well, welcome to the mountains of Washington State, where I'm wearing a mask and playing with a little robotic dog. You want to do it again? That's right. Go get it. Bring it back again. Well, actually, I'm standing in front of a green screen in New York wearing a headset that puts me and, by extension, you in a virtual mountain reality. Here's David Poe. At the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas this past week, you might have wondered why people were strapping these contraptions to their faces. What are they, blindfolds? Scuba masks? Some kind of unpleasant eye exam? 
Nope, they're virtual reality headsets. There's nothing quite like donning the headset yourself and truly experiencing these environments. Ryan Hoopengarner spends much of his time demonstrating one of the most popular headsets, the HTC Vive. I'll have you put on your headset. Okay. As soon as you put on the goggles, you get it. You're not just seeing a scene, you can look around inside it. Wow. The Vive requires laser sensors that you set up in your room and special handles that you carry. As a result, you can even walk around inside the scene or even handle objects in that virtual world. Oh, explosions! But VR entertainment can be more than just blowing stuff up. It can take you places you couldn't or wouldn't go, like the bottom of the ocean. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> okay, that's a big whale. Hi! Or the top of Mount Everest. HTC isn't alone, of course. Sony, Samsung, Google, and Facebook each released new VR headsets last year. And just this week, another half dozen were unveiled at the electronics show. With so many different goggles coming out, the software companies are racing to write software that'll run on them. Like VRDefy, which aims to give you a front row seat at concerts. All sorts of businesses are considering the possibilities. Bradley Stern went shopping for a new townhouse without leaving his realtor's office. Everything is so vivid. Real estate agent Evan Rosenfeld thinks virtual reality could change the way people buy homes forever. We have this now. Where are we going to be in five years? You know, is the, is the client going to be able to completely design their property before it's even built? I think that it's really going to be something spectacular. Wow. Now, virtual reality has actually been around for decades. Is he asleep for sure? No, he'll wake up right now. In St. Louis, a man swings at nothing. In a North Carolina lab, a man bends to look at nothing. Have these people all lost touch with reality? In a way, yes. This is virtual reality. But VR was never good enough to appeal to the public until 2014. Facebook is making another multi-billion dollar acquisition. That's when Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg paid $2 billion to buy Oculus, a headset created by 17-year-old Palmer Lucky in his parents' garage. These days, Silicon Valley seems to believe that soon we'll all live our lives wearing VR goggles. Never mind that they can cost as much as $800 and must be wired to a high-end PC. But just because a new technology gets a lot of hype doesn't mean it's actually ready for prime time. First of all, there's a giant thing on your head, which is just obnoxious. USC Annenberg communications professor Dimitri Williams studies how people interact with technology. A lot of the early sets had these pretty significant problems with motion sickness and nausea. That will drop down and go away over time. But right now, we're in a bump where I have trouble sometimes, and a lot of people do. So they're big and heavy, very expensive, and sometimes make you sick. Great. But Williams says there's an even bigger problem with VR. It's incredibly isolating. It shuts you off from the world. I don't think people are going to be wearing VR goggles much of their days because then they can't look at other people. And it is just that simple. And that's where augmented reality comes in. That's where you still see the real world around you, but the computer layers new graphics onto that view. Remember Pokemon Go? 
Last summer, millions of people played this game, searching the real world for digital creatures that appeared only on the phone's screen. That is augmented reality. All right, so go ahead and put this on. The Microsoft HoloLens is an augmented reality headset, or what Microsoft calls mixed reality. Welcome to Windows Holographic. Okay. The TVs are actually off. There's nothing no, over not any off. television. There's a picture of mountains on it. That's an actual hologram. You know, uh, Alex Kipman heads up the HoloLens project for Microsoft. He compares today's HoloLens to a cell phone from 1985. But even this early model is wireless, weighs only a pound, and responds to hand and voice commands. Go ahead and just look at the browser, select it, and drag up and down. Ah. You're an expert. <laughs> when you work then with wearing HoloLens, you're saying that you have multiple virtual floating monitors like this? Mm -hmm. So That's you can right. say, okay, here's my programming, here's my web, here's my email. That's exactly correct. I Imagine see. infinite monitors at your fingertips. It's still a long way from those floating screens in the Tom Cruise movie Minority Report, but maybe not as far as you think. So let's go ahead and get in. Oh, hello. There's a dude here. Uh, right brachiocephalic trunk. In Ohio, Case Western Reserve University Medical School and the Cleveland Clinic have teamed up to create an anatomy curriculum. The internal thoracic arteries, which are rising from the subclavian arteries, they pass down on either side of the sternum. The school plans to replace the traditional cadaver lab used for anatomy classes with clean, upright, heart still pumping, digital bodies, courtesy of HoloLens. Mark Griswold led the team that designed the curriculum. What you're doing is what our medical students did the first time they saw this too. They got down on the ground and they looked at it from underneath because it was the first time they were able to see that. You know, that is crazy. You know, they always tell singers, sing from the diaphragm, you want your diaphragm flattened, and I never knew what that meant. Yeah, that's the diaphragm. This is the, the muscle that helps us breathe. Wow. It's a really important structure, and it's really difficult to see in a cadaver. It was really the diaphragm that blew me away. I had kind of an aha moment. First-year medical student Nicole Wise was surprised at how real the hologram seemed. I went in 100% thinking it would be a fun day, but that it was going to be gimmicky. I walked out of it having learned things that I hadn't appreciated either in the cadaver course or in our lectures. We envision a day when every student showing up on campus is going to have a HoloLens in their backpack. Like high schools are giving out laptops to use. Yeah, this is going to be a core part of what you learn. Whether it's history or anatomy, you're going to be learning on HoloLens. Are you saying that this is radical enough to become something that everybody's got someday? Absolutely. Microsoft's Alex Kipman. There is a world in front of us where these things are replacing your phone. They're replacing your TVs. They're replacing your desktop. I mean, think about how long ago you didn't have PCs in your office. Seems like forever ago, but it's been like 20 years. So I do believe absolutely they replace it. When? That I don't know. Um, it will be within our lifetimes. I don't know about you, I'm really, really bad. I couldn't find anyone to shoot. But for USC's Dimitri Williams, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality, this technology won't succeed until it becomes more interesting than, well, real reality.
Imagine it's you know a year, two years, five years from now, and everybody can easily throw on their goggles and do things. And is it better than not wearing goggles? Is it better than when we were just watching TV together? Is it better than when we were playing a board game or having dinner or having a conversation? God forbid, right? <laughs> Your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bed post overnight. Up next, something to chew on. Can you catch it on your tonsils? Can you heave it left and right? Does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bed post overnight? And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. January 8th, 1998, 19 years ago today. The day bubblegum inventor Walter Diemer died at the age of 93. Diemer was working in Philadelphia for the Fleer Candy Company in 1928 when he accidentally stumbled upon the winning formula. He made it pink, he said, because that was the one food color he happened to have on hand. Accident or not, Fleer's double bubble brand inflated rapidly from that small beginning. A 1950s promotional film proudly showed off Fleer's production skills, as well as the bubble-blowing prowess of its staff. By the 1970s, other companies had joined the bubble battle, including Lifesavers, our bubble yum bubble gum, which was consumer testing its bubble yum brand. You think it's better, the same, or not as good as other bubble gums? Better. Better. Not that bubble gum is just for the young, as our own Charles Osgood learned from Lifesavers president, William Morris. And one of the things that we missed in our projections are what we call the closet chewer, which is the adult bubble gum chewer. We never looked at the adults. From big league athletes to the Guinness World Record holder, there's clearly no shame in being an adult bubble gum chewer. Nor is there any sign in the business sense, at least, of the bubble bursting anytime soon. Ahead. We can put up a centipede. Yeah, try it. A higher calling. The artist Tyrus Wong died just a few days ago at the remarkable age of 106. Remarkable as well was the contribution he made to one of our most beloved films. Tracy Smith knows all about his life story firsthand. For decades, artist Tyrus Wong and his fantastic kites were a fixture on and above Santa Monica Beach. Yellow against the sky, sharp. And while you might not recognize his name, a certain deer named Bambi has Tyrus Wong to thank for the exquisite settings in the 1942 film. How much of an impact did Tyrus Wong have on the look of Bambi? He basically created the look of the film. This is Tyrus painting a mural in Michael Labrie, director of collections at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, curated an exhibition of Wong's work in 2013. Everything you see on the screen, the other artists were trained to draw like Tyrus for that film. Bambi. 
Wong was working a tedious entry-level job at Disney in 1938 when he heard about the studio's plans to adapt Felix Salton's book into a movie. He spent weekends doing hundreds and hundreds of drawings, sort of like Chinese scroll paintings. Walt Disney himself decided that the look of the film would be based on Tyrus Wong's drawings. This is a real special piece of The Prince in the Forest, where he framed what the piece was supposed to say in the story. The 74-year-old film is beloved by generations, including Los Angeles filmmaker well, Pamela Tom. You know, Tyrus really contributed to American culture. She was watching Bambi with her daughter back in 1997 when she happened to catch Tyrus Wong's name in the credits. So my first thought was, wait a minute, Chinese-American working at Disney in the 1930s, and I just had to find out who he was. Mrs. Studio. And what Tom found out turned into a documentary, illustrating why Tyrus Wong was, as she calls him, the perfect leading man with an epic life story. It's set to air on PBS's American Masters this summer. My father, he'd be nine years old, well, I'm gonna take to the old America, I think a better opportunity. Wong came to the U.S. with only his father in 1920. Did you get into a little bit of mischief? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I'm no angel, you know. No angel? No. When Wong was in junior high, one of his teachers noticed he was more interested in art than arithmetic, and so did Tyrus's dad. He understood the value of your artistic talent, but it was unusual for an immigrant, a Chinese immigrant, to choose art. Chinese talent didn't think very much of being an artist. They didn't think very much of your being an artist. You have to remember that the employment opportunities for Chinese back then was limited to being a waiter, working in a laundry. But the father, in his wisdom, recognized his son's talents and went out and borrowed money to get Tyrus through his first year of art school. After graduation from Otis Art Institute in Los Angeles, Wong found work as an artist and also worked at a restaurant in Chinatown. There, he fell hard for a pretty co-worker, Ruth Kim. What moment in your life gave you the most joy? <laughs> when I got married. They wed in 1937, and by 1938 had the first of three daughters. It was Ruth who suggested Tyrus apply for a job at Disney. How long did Tyrus work at Disney? Only for three years. Why did he leave? It was to do with the strike. Wong was let go after many Disney animators went out on strike in 1941, a full year before Bambi was finished, and his contributions to the film were minimized. When you talk to him, though, there's absolutely no bitterness. That really reflects Tyrus's personality. It's not to say that he didn't feel racism or injustice, but he really picked his battles and just tried to not dwell on it. Wong then spent 26 years at Warner Brothers, where he helped create the look of dozens of films. I think Paul Newman. Uh, Paul Newman, yeah. Shelley Winter. Probably, yeah. Always mindful of providing for his family, he also designed Christmas cards on the side. Kim Wong is Tyrus's youngest daughter. We would go into the department stores, my sister and I would go, and we'd find his album and always put it on top where people would see it. One of Tyrus's designs sold over a million cards. The only time Tyrus stopped working was when Ruth got sick. 
he spent 15 years caring for her until she died in 1995. They were married for over 50 years. He was really just devoted to caring for her. Ruth never got the chance to see her husband celebrated for his work. Our next legend had a brief but impactful Disney career. But his in 2001, Disney honored him as a legend. This side thing too. Someday it worth a lot of money. <laughs> 75 cents to a dollar. And though it took the world a while to acknowledge Tyrus Wong. We can put up a centipede. Yeah, try it. Today, like the kites he created, his reputation continues to soar. And it's such a beautiful metaphor for his life. You know, because after he retired, he was fishing. And he says, you know, with fishing, you look down. But with kites, you look up. Always looking up. Next stop, the lost city. Your inscription's right here. And later, I become a prisoner of my own theatricality. Catching up with Iggy Pop. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Who's afraid of the curse of the lost city? Certainly not the explorers who've been reliving their adventures and misadventures with our Lee Cowan. If you ask best-selling author Doug Preston, he'll say he doesn't believe in curses. And yet... I have the perfect reason. I mean, it's Here he is, being treated for an illness he contracted while on a jungle expedition. To a site rumored for centuries to rain misfortune down on anyone who entered. I would never trade that experience for anything. It was so powerful. His tale begins in the rainforest of Mesquitia, carpeting some 20,000 square miles of Honduras and Nicaragua. The legend is that there was a great city in the mountains that was struck by a series of catastrophes, and the inhabitants thought the gods were angry at them and left, leaving all their belongings behind. Some call it the White City, others the city of the monkey god. Its possible existence has tantalized adventure seekers since the 1500s, including explorer Steve Elkins, who's been obsessed with finding the city since the early 90s. Who doesn't like a story that has some mystery in it? So let's go and see what happens. They might come back with today from the other sites too. He launched his latest expedition in 2012 and invited Doug Preston to write about it. So you went along because why? I thought, Steve's never going to find a lost city. That's ridiculous. Um, but, you know, who knows? Even if he doesn't find anything, it might make a good story. But this time, Elkins had something no previous expeditions to the area did. Double check things here. It's called LIDAR, a high-tech laser mapping system. Clean the lens. Peering through a hole cut in the bottom of an old Cessna Skymaster, it could scan hundreds of square miles of dense jungle in a matter of days. The problem? It was expensive. This one shows the, the full scale of the convoy. Okay. Enter documentary filmmaker Bill Benenson, who agreed to foot the million-dollar-plus bill if he could capture the adventure on film. 
this technology could see through the jungle canopy and potentially reveal the contours of what might be underneath it. It seemed like a valuable gamble. I'm here for the Eureka moment. I was One that soon uh, paid off. What the LiDAR revealed, once that jungle canopy was removed, shocked everyone on the team. I zoomed into about this level and I just went, holy crap. And I said, this is what looks like rectangular structures. Yeah, look at this. Definite... Look at that. I mean, that is about as linear, perfectly linear lines, and that's a right angle. And they were either man-made or the world's most intelligent gophers were out there doing things they've never done before. So what did you think you had found initially? Well, I knew we found a city. A city. <laughs> An ancient city. That I knew. But what it was beyond that, that was up for the archaeologists to figure out. That archaeologist was Colorado State's Chris Fisher. It sounds like it's a pretty big deal. Well, I think it is. Is it like Machu Picchu? No, you know. But for this area, um, from regionally, I think, it, I think it's very, very important. He helped National Geographic artists come up with this rendering of what the city might have looked like. Here you see the interior of the plaza. But he had to get there on foot to know for sure. It's actually a stairway that goes here. And it took three long years of planning. Just to get into this jungle is extremely dangerous. And once you're there, it's thick, thick with poisonous snakes. The deadliest, a pit viper called the fair de lance. Docile enough during the day. But when one slithered into camp under the cover of darkness, it caused an understandable panic. On the team, a jungle warfare expert who leapt into action. He pinned the snake, but the snake exploded at that point in an absolute fury of striking everywhere, squirting venom, you know, like streams of venom across the night air. The next morning, the jungle seemed a little less ominous, and the march to the site began. It was like cutting your way through a shag carpet. What wasn't growing was oozing with mud. Ah. Let's go up on top of this one and work our way back down that way. The jungle was so thick, all they could see were leaves, even when standing right in front of what Chris Fisher thought was a pyramid. That's the pyramid right there in front of you. Where is the pyramid? Right there, right, you're looking at it. The big lump. Can't say I see a whole lot from here. Well, that's what it is, that's a pyramid. It's made out of earth. There were no stone structures to speak of, just foundations. But the next day, almost by accident, disappointment turned to jubilation. Do you see this? There's a heap. There are inscriptions right here. There are? Yes. On the edge here, there's decorations anyway. Someone said, hey, wait a minute. There's some weird stones over here. And we all came back. And the first thing I saw was a jaguar head coming out of the ground carved in stone, snarling. Okay, whoa, 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 everybody stop. Back up. Don't touch anything. Don't clear anything, please. There at their feet was a trove of artifacts believed to date from the 16th century. The personal belongings of inhabitants who fled the valley, as one theory would have it, in a desperate attempt to escape European disease and slavery. It was phenomenal to think that in the 21st century, you could still find something like this on the surface of the earth. 
Some in the academic community, however, are not so easily impressed. We don't go out looking for treasure anymore. We go out looking for knowledge. Rosemary Joyce, a professor of anthropology at UC Berkeley, says an expedition led by filmmakers reeks more of Indiana Jones than it does real science. And some 20 other archaeologists agreed. Anybody can write an adventure story. We have no objection to that. But it's being portrayed as archaeology, and it's not. Thank you. Some indigenous people bristled when the Honduran president removed the first artifact himself. They considered the site sacred and said it should be left alone. So in the end, what this expedition unearthed was a lot more than just relics. It became a stew of excitement, questions, criticism, and ill health. Well, maybe you'll end up in a hospital like this. <laughs> Months after leaving the jungle, Doug Preston noticed a bite from a sandfly that just wouldn't heal. So did Chris Fisher. The National Institutes of Health diagnosed it as a frightening parasitic disease called leishmaniasis. The parasite uh, migrates to the mucous membranes of your mouth and your nose and basically eats them away. Your nose falls off, your lips fall off, and eventually a, your face becomes a gigantic open sore. Over the next few months, about half the expedition came down with the early symptoms and had to undergo the painful treatment. That's a good, the helicopter shot, the overview. Bill Benenson and Steve Elkins were spared, and their documentary about their adventure is now in its final edit. Doug Preston, bucking the criticism, titled his book, The Lost City of the Monkey God. As for the site, well, only a fraction of it has been excavated, and questions linger about how or if to go back again. Too dangerous to stay there. It's just too dangerous, and just getting in and out is dangerous. It would seem the jungle is still fighting to keep its secrets, an almost impenetrable veil making a better accounting of what's really there difficult at best. And that, in the end, may be the most lasting curse of all. Now i got to go in and get your bucket because you left it over there. Coming up... Move your head. Best friends. A very old horse is still kicking, thanks to one very devoted friend. Tony DeCopel has their story. When Donnie McAdams wakes up to feed the horses... Morning, kids. There's one in particular that gets special attention. Waco, you are doing? Waco Hanover is a retired harness racer, living out his days on a farm in the Green Mountains of Vermont. He was never able to outrun most horses, but he certainly managed to outlive them. Hang on, slow down, will ya? And this month, Waco is celebrating a very rare birthday for a horse, the Big 4-0. That's about 120 in people years. You see, under an old rule of horse racing, January 1st is considered the universal birthday of runners. Since the life expectancy for a horse is about 25 years, he's one old horse. Now I gotta go in and get your bucket because you left it over there. Donnie McAdams Move your head. is a big part of Waco's longevity. Living in an apartment above the barn, he's not only caretaker, grain? he's kind of a roommate. Go. Good boy. But mostly 
He's Waco's best friend. Very polite, Waco. Donnie manages a state information center just off Interstate 89. Keys in it. Yeah. Yeah. But for the past eight years, his downtime has been utterly devoted to Waco. Go. It's not a warm and cuddly friendship because Donnie is not a warm and cuddly guy. No talking. And as luck would have it, neither is Waco. He's a cranky old SOB, just like I am. But don't be fooled by their tough guy act. What do you guys do for fun? Uh... (laughs) Eat animal crackers. Yeah, pretty much. Do you want a cookie? There you go. Yeah, just one. So many that you've had in the last few days. A healthy appetite is relatively new for Waco. When Donnie moved in back in 2008, the horse was barely eating at all. I wanted to dig a hole because I didn't think he'd make it through the winter. But as it turned out, Waco wasn't sick. He was lonely. I just talked to him one day for about a half an hour and uh, got him to accept the fact that I ain't going anywhere. I'm your buddy. And it's been going on now for eight years. Oh, yeah. Donnie's work at the information center has him dealing with people. Not exactly his thing. But at the end of the day, Waco is there. There are times when, in the wintertime, walk in the barn, walk down there, just lean on the front of the stall front. He would put his head on my shoulder and just chew. Just chew. And just calm me down. Even after a heart attack, when Donnie didn't feel like he'd ever recover. I couldn't um, carry a five-gallon bucket of water because it was too too physically stressful. Waco was there. Now it's like, man, two five-gallon pails, let's go. You ever think what would happen to him if something happened to you? Why? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason why I'm still around, honestly. You ready? Ahead, pop star Iggy Pop. Candy was a big hit back in 1990 for the pop star known as Iggy Pop. All these years later, he's still on stage and back on the charts and talking to Anthony Mason for the record. On stage, Iggy Pop has always lived on the edge. He's a rock provocateur, a restless and reckless frontman who has excited and offended. I'm still not sure what the civilized world wants to do about me. I'm not sure what their intentions are. Hi, everybody! With his latest album, the artist often called the godfather of punk, has made a belated bid for respectability. There have been plenty of naysayers in my life and career since I started. Mm -hmm. I wanted to say, I can succeed at this. He has. His highest charting album ever, post-pop depression, is nominated for a Grammy. I just start jumping up and down like baboons do before they're going to fight. And he's the subject of a documentary. 
Gimme Danger, which shows how he invented the stage dive. At 69, he still gets the urge. I shouldn't be doing that, but every once in a while, you know, your spirit. I thought you'd given up stage diving. Well, I gave it up here, but not here. <laughs> you want to connect. Yes. And granted, it's a very fundamental way to connect, but, but it's a connection that I found in my life. As eloquent as Iggy is in person, on stage, he's a blunt instrument, the out-of-control alter ego of Jim Osterberg. I don't know how that works. I haven't got a clue. Mm -hmm. Something happens. But you obviously like it. I need it. You do? Yes. What do you get back in that connection? Uh, love. These are your folks. This is my father, James Osterberg, senior, my namesake, and Mrs. Luella, my mother. And they were exemplary parents. James Osterberg Jr. grew up in a trailer park in Ypsilanti, Michigan. At Tappan Junior High. Wonderful school. You were voted most likely to succeed by your class. Yeah. You wrote in a friend's yearbook that, that you were going to be the 43rd president of the United States. I was interested in politics. You were. I went door to door for Kennedy. But between then and later, the music seduced me. The name Iggy came from his first band, the Iguanas. In the late 60s, he formed the Stooges. And his alter ego, the dangerous frontman known to roll around on broken glass, was born. You put yourself at physical risk. Yeah, I did. What was that about? Well, once you start something, if you're me, you need to finish it. The Stooges weren't commercially successful, but they were influential. Nirvana's Kurt Cobain called their album Raw Power his all-time favorite record. It was mixed by David Bowie. Where did you meet? In a bar. In a bar. In New York. In New York. <laughs> On the Dinah Shore show with Iggy in 1977, Bowie described their different sounds. Mine comes from sort of up to from sure. there, and Jimmy's comes from about here down to ooh. <laughs> about there. You know. I don't know. I wonder what he means by that. <laughs> I don't know. I'll ask you later. Okay, kid. I'll tell you. <laughs> Bowie played keyboards behind Iggy on tour that year. He was nicer to me than he had to be. That is a super rare thing with a Hig. I know a what hig? you're thinking. What is a Hig? Huge industry giant. <laughs> Bowie and Iggy would collaborate on more than three albums of material, including this song. This is your work. That is my work. It hangs in Iggy's Miami bungalow. He took up painting because Bowie had two. This represents my inflamed soul. And these are little devils whispering uh, bad suggestions in my ear. <laughs> Through much of the 70s, as he moved between Detroit, LA, and New York, the devil Iggy battled was heroin. It landed him in UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute. Why did you check yourself into a mental institution? Because uh, I become a prisoner of my own theatricality. It took time, but he turned it around. I lived a very straight life with a crooked mind. <laughs> can you live a straight life with a crooked <laughs> yes, mind? Yes, you can. <laughs> and by the late 90s, he'd moved to Miami. 
This is where I would prefer to be just about all the time, just about every day. That same decade, pop culture finally began to embrace Iggy. He had his biggest radio hit. And his music was featured in the 1996 film Train Spotting. Are you conscious of the influence of your band? I have a feeling that I've had some sort of minor spiritual influence. I went to the Fillmore in New York, and there were four guys on stage with no shirt on, and they all looked like me, and it was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> you know, and I thought, how do I compete with that? There aren't many Iggy's left out there, are there? Well, there's Iggy and there's... Josh Homme produced and co-wrote Iggy's new album. I look at Iggy as this kind of colorful piece of art. It has this grizzled beauty about his perspective and his persona, his body, his experience. But Iggy Pop says this album is likely his last. It's a 40-year-old guy's schedule. It's not a 69-year-old guy's schedule. And I'm, I'm doing all right with it, but I'd be a fool to try to keep it up. Jimmy Osterberg is ready to slow down now that the world seems to have caught up with his alter ego. This century has been a fresh start for me, mm -hmm. and the sky's cleared. Hmm. Everything that wouldn't work suddenly started to work. What do you think happened? I don't know. The simplest thing I would think is that maybe society and I met halfway. He was wonderful. Wonderful? Yes. I'm talking about the Repo Man. He was wonderful. A Repo Man with a heart. Next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Whatever would possess a Repo Man to become a guardian angel? Steve Hartman can tell us. If you need to feel loved... You're going to have people try to run you over with their car. Jim Ford says this is not the job for you. For the last 20 years, he has worked as a repo man outside St. Louis. I've only been really shot at four times. You realize four is a lot. Once where they were actually trying to kill me. That's still a lot. <laughs> I guess. Fortunately, I guess. this story isn't about his most disgruntled customers. It's about his most grateful. He was wonderful. Wonderful? Yes. I'm talking about the Repo Man. He was wonderful. I mean, he's the kindest man I've ever met in all my life. Stan and Pat Kipping live in Redbud, Illinois. Stan, a Navy vet and retired janitor, is in the early stages of Alzheimer's. I love you. Well, I love you too, baby. They say they've never been rich, but they've never been this deep in debt either. The most devastating blow came just a few months back when they realized they couldn't even afford the $100 monthly payments on their 98 Buick Century. When he took the car, I just said, God, do whatever, whatever you think is best for us. You know, God works in mysterious ways. Well, if he's working through a repo man, that's the most mysterious of all. That's right. <laughs> They're like America's grandparents. I, I saw my grandparents in them, and I made it a block before I pulled over and called the bank. And I asked them if I could pay off the pay off the past due amount. You must have cleaned it up a lot. Jim returned a few days later. He had the car detailed, the oil changed, even put a frozen turkey in the front. He also started a GoFundMe, which covered the late payments and then some. We paid off the whole car. The whole oh car? My God. Oh, my God. You have no car payment anymore. Oh, my God. Just pay the whole thing off. 
Finally, he gave them an envelope with the extra money, more than $17,000 extra to date. How has this changed your outlook on life? There's good people out there. He's our guardian angel. There are good people out there, guardian angels. And sometimes you find them in the most unlikely places and professions. Because, although kindness is rarely a job, no matter what you do, it's always an option. Still to come. Radio set, please. Director-producer, Lee Daniels. And later, two painters, one vision. I'm sorry, Mr. Butler. I didn't mean to make fun of your hero. Everything you are and everything you have is because of that butler. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. With films such as The Butler, the outspoken producer and director Lee Daniels has been charting his own distinctive course, and he's far from finished. Moraka has our Sunday profile. Y'all are funny. That's the cool. that's it. I thought it. Thank you. There are at least two things Lee Daniels is really good at. Get cotton over here. Cotton, cotton. The first is making movies and TV shows that people love. On the set of what he hopes becomes his newest hit. Yeah. TV show star Daniels ricochets from the soundstage. Energy's up, but the energy is up here. Let me see the girls. To the costume department. That doesn't look like a twenty thousand dollar outfit. To a meeting about music. You still sing? Yeah, I still sing. I love it. Music is a big part of Star, a series about a racially diverse aspiring girl group. The inspiration? The Broadway musical Dream Girls. I'll never forget stealing my mom's Eldorado and driving from Philadelphia at 17 into New York City and sneaking in to see the show and just how it changed my life. But it's not really about Dream Girls, it's about my life. Um, when I first came to Hollywood, the desperation and finding myself, understanding what it was that I wanted. An even earlier formative experience in Daniel's life helped inspire his hit series, Empire. Is it exactly what happened that your father took you when you came down wearing your mother's high heels and put you in a trash can? Yes. Do you think your father was just reacting to effeminacy, or do you think your father was reacting to, uh-oh, I know what this means for him later on? Both. Both, because I think that, I, I think that he, as a, as a man, was embarrassed to have uh, a gay... I had no questions. I had no problems, rather, letting him know this is how I felt at an early age. I was very outspoken. I owned who it was that I was. Daniel's father was a Philadelphia police officer. I, I think that he felt, no, I know that he felt that being an African-American man was hard enough, especially in those times. But to be gay on top of that was just a suicide note. Um, and 
he reminded me of that repeatedly. How? It, verbally, you know, physically. He, he was embarrassed and, and ashamed. I think in hindsight, he was just more concerned about my future. And so I think that in some strange way, his telling me that I was nothing inspired me to be something. When Daniels was 15, his father was killed during a holdup. His mother, with five children to support, convinced a neighbor to help her eldest son attend an elite suburban high school. I remember going into that environment and being the only black person and feeling love and feeling like they, you know, there was absolutely no racism at all for me. Did you make friends fast? Oh yeah. I learned to go seamlessly through a black environment to a white environment and to adapt to both. And I think that that helped me uh, with uh, my journey, that I was comfortable, very comfortable in both places. The experience gave him the confidence, he said, to move at age 21 to Los Angeles, where he worked as a receptionist at an agency for home health aides. Soon enough, he opened his own successful agency, but... I did what most kids do when they don't have a strong foundation or a father or come from where I come from. I blew it on cars and drugs and, and then I sold it and then made more money. But what Daniels really wanted was to make movies. So he started at the bottom as a production assistant on the movie Purple Rain. Now I've heard a story mm -hmm. that you showed up on set as a PA. In an Armani suit and, and a Porsche. Driving a Smoking Porsche. a Newport cigarette. He wasn't a PA for long. His winning combination of talent, smarts, and startling self-assurance propelled him. By age 41, Daniels produced Monster's Ball, which won Halle Berry an Oscar. As the director of the movie Precious, Daniels earned his own Oscar nomination. Who was going to love me? for getting raw performances from a cast that included a certain diva, almost unrecognizable as a social worker. How did you get Mariah Carey to take off her makeup for Precious? Carefully. <laughs> I'm a snake charmer. I mean, nice. What's that? I mean, was it nice, a hazardous situation? Nice and easy. Easy does it. Easy does it. Um, when actors work with me, they know that they can trust me. And I, I'm not afraid to tell people who I am and what my flaws are. And mm -hmm. getting that, um, people talk back and they open up and their guard is down. And when that guard is down, get it! <laughs> get it! Radio set, please. No, he doesn't hold back. Which brings us to the second thing Lee Daniels is very good at. I gotta tell you, for the record, I'm bored with um, Hollywood people of color saying, Hollywood owes you something. Don't nobody owe you nothing. Provoking and sometimes outraging people with his unalloyed candor, especially on the topic of race. I had to fight for everything from my very first movie on. You raised the money from Oscar's Yes, and Ball. so for me, these entitled people that say, oh, Hollywood owes us something, no. You owe you something. And then you're going to say, oh, Hollywood owes me awards. 
huh? The fact that you want to do a movie for an award and that somebody owes you an award? Get out of here. It only makes sense. <laughs> and you call yourself an artist? Really? We don't do it for the awards. At last year's Oscars, mm -hmm. when there were no black nominees for any of the acting awards, how did you feel? How did I feel? I don't know that there was anything that was deserved to be nominated, was there? I don't vote on color. I vote on the movies that deserve to be nominated. And um, you don't see me running around complaining because I ain't getting nothing for the butler. You know what? Next, I went on and made Empire. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, see ya. <laughs> From a fur-lined hammock in his New York City apartment, 57-year-old Lee Daniels presides over an empire he hopes continues to expand. Do I think that there are injustices in Hollywood every day as they are in America? Yes, there are. Not just injustices, but there are atrocities, I believe, that have happened. But is that going to define me? No. And um, am I going to get what's mine? You better believe it, I am. I will continue. The growing popularity of the verb curate is making our faith Saley increasingly irate. If you're watching this right now, I'm honored to be part of the entertainment selection you've curated. We're living in a curation nation. Did you know you can have your nail polishes curated? Your closet? Blind dates? There's a snack bar company called Curate who will boldly select and organize for your mouth a presentation of quinoa, chia seeds, and elderberry. I don't mean to brag, but my water filter curates tap water, offering moi the finest combination of H2 and O available. Nowadays, everyone's a curator. No PhD in art history required. Got an opinion? Got content? Curate! The word curate began as a noun, which in the 1300s meant a clergyman, from the Latin cura, or care. In the 17th century, curate was applied to a custodian in charge of caring for and preserving libraries, museums, and the like. Sometime in the late 1800s, curate debuted as a verb for such aesthetic pursuits. And then, soon after the dawn of the 21st century, le déluge. Scones, or scones, as the English like to say. Martha Stewart demonstrated how to make our homes and scones picture-worthy. Nowadays, scones are filled with all kinds of wonderful things. Oprah Winfrey offered us her favorite things. We have curated all of my favorite things in one place. Social media provides a constant platform on which to feature what we deem beautiful, meaningful, and worthy. From caring for souls to caring about selfies, Curate has come a long way. A Michigan University um, curated words that should be banished, and guess what landed on its list? I think the curation consternation is this. Just because you like something or list something, are you really curating? But the question really is not who gets to use the word or when will we reach peak curate. No, the real question is this. If everyone is curating, why is there so much crap? One man's content is another woman's crap. And the crappy content, let's call it content, will never go away. So God bless folks who claim to filter it. More power to them. And now I must bid adieu.
I can only hope the editor of this commentary has curated my contents into eloquence. Next, the same, only different. How do works by two different painters from two different eras compare when we see them side by side? With Rita Braver, let's take a look. They were born nearly 50 years and an ocean apart. Henri Matisse is a household name in this country. He's a French painter, but many Americans have never heard of Richard Diebenkorn. I know, and, and I'm hoping that that will change. Change curator Katie Rothkopf says, as viewers see the work of Matisse, the French post-impressionist master, and Diebenkorn, the influential but less known American modernist, side by side for the first time. We have 92 works um, in this exhibition, uh, 56 by Diebenkorn and 36 by Matisse. Now on view at the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibit will travel to San Francisco in the spring. What do you think are the greatest similarities between these two artists? They both loved color, and I think they both just uh, had a magic touch with the paintbrush. The two never met, but the similarity was more than mere coincidence. Richard Diebenkorn studied Matisse almost obsessively. He was someone who was a real student, and certainly uh, there were other artists that influenced him throughout his life, but no one more than Matisse. One reason that Diebenkorn is less well-known than other important artists of the mid-20th century is that he lived and worked in America's West, far from New York, than the epicenter of modern art in America. Thank and you. your paintings look beautiful. Thanks very much. It's really a pleasure. Born in 1922 in Portland, Oregon, and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, Diebenkorn began drawing as a toddler, eventually going on to study art at Stanford. He was working in the abstract expressionist mode. Uh, he loved abstraction, and that was certainly the style of the time. He first saw Matisse in 1943 and was hooked. Over the years, traveling as far as Paris and St. Petersburg to view the older artist's work. But Diebenkorn never sought to imitate Matisse. I think he felt very much that it was important to look to the past, and, and why would you not look at something that someone else had done? You know, it didn't mean that you were, you know, that you were copying them. It just meant that they were inspiring you. Both men produced abstract and figurative works, some with flattened, muted colors, others with vibrant, recognizable images. This was uh, painted in 1967 by Richard Diebenkorn. The yellow. <laughs> was this a color that he came to like a lot? Because there are He liked a lot of colors, and he liked bold color. And You've got it next to the Henri Matisse, the yellow dress. Now, Diebenkorn would have seen this painting, uh, but we certainly don't have any evidence that his painting was a direct response, but certainly one that it would in have there. been in his mind. This one's probably my mother. A um, little tired of posing, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Gretchen Diebenkorn Grant is the daughter of the late painter. Did you, at any time while you were growing up, realize that he was indeed influenced by Henri Matisse? Oh, yes. 
he had a wonderful collection of art books. He had more Matisse books than anything else. People would give them to him all the time. And on the day we visited the Baltimore Museum of Art, she got to meet Sophie Matisse, Henri's great-granddaughter, for the very first time. They look at the world in a sort of similar way. I'm looking around while I'm <laughs> yeah, saying this too. to see the sensibilities. The work is not the same, but it's very definitely related. But they kind of um, exchange kind of a mystical language between the two of them that I think comes out in this show that's just breathtaking. The parallels are unmistakable. I love these two paintings. The interior, exterior of both of them is so prominent, so important. That was something they both were really interested yes. in, that contrast yeah. of light and yeah, color. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Richard Diebenkorn died in 1993 at the age of 70, nearly 40 years after Matisse's death. Diebenkorn lived to witness his own success, but since he never met the man who influenced him along the way, their relationship is left to the canvas and our imaginations. It's lovely that you two are having the chance to meet. Don't yeah. you imagine what a conversation between these two artists would have been? I'm sure that my father would have loved to have met Matisse. How do you know they're not like up there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> looking down. <laughs> I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.